Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 126. The Sconti family feud and a duchy is born. 1378 to 1395. In the last episode, we left Florence looking very worriedly at the rather greedy expansion of the Visconti of Milan under their new ruler, Gian Galeazzo Visconti. However, the last time we left Milan, there had been a power-sharing deal between two brothers, Galeazzo and Bernabò. There had been a third to start off with, but the brothers must have been aware of the saying that three is a crowd and did in with the third brother. Now, we mentioned that this deal had actually worked quite well once they had divided up the spheres of influence. It even assisted in the politics of ambiguity that the Visconti so dearly loved. For example, when Florence had been shopping for allies to form an anti-Hawkwood league because the English mercenary was wreaking havoc in Tuscany, Galeazzo stayed out and Bernabò was half-heartedly in. By the way, you will remember that in the last episode, we spoke of the War of the Eight Saints between Florence and the Papal States. Well, it was Bernabò who was asked to broker the peace after also the insistence of Catherine of Siena put the pressure on the Pope. When the whole business of the Western Schism erupted after the election of Pope Urban VI and then anti-Pope Clement VII in 1378, it seemed like the Visconti would actually have to get off the fence and choose sides for once. But then Clement VII was defeated by Urban, who had hired the sellsword Alberigo da Barbiano and was sent packing off to Avignon which left an easy choice for the Milanese, who chose the only pope left around in the country, as did almost all of the other Italians except for Queen Joanna of Naples, who would not be queen for much longer. To make a long story short, the whole power-sharing business had worked quite well. The question was, would things continue to run smoothly when the situation passed to the heirs? Of the two brothers, Galeazzo married Bianca, Blanche of Savoy. Now, I didn't just throw that in there because I learned it from a book. But since we are seeing now that the Savoy are coming into prominence, it's high time we spent a bit more time on them beyond the passing mention. And we will. Just not now. From this union came three children, two girls, Maria and Violante, and Gian Galeazzo, the heir who was born on the 16th of October, 1351. When he was 23 years old, he was considered old enough to get involved in the family business, i.e. 
grabbing up lots of land and cities and managing them. He was given control of the cities of Novara, Vercelli, Alessandria, Tortona and Casale Monferrato in the northwest of the Visconti holdings. There will be a pub quiz at the end, so you must remember these cities. Obviously, I'm just joking. All you need to remember is he got a bunch of cities. His father, Galeazzo, maintained overlordship of all the territories with the title of Dominus Generalis. Furthermore, Gian Galeazzo, let's call him Gigi from now on, would be allowed to use his discretion in dealing with the situation in Piedmont and particularly the Savoy and the Marquis of Monferrato. Daddy Galeazzo died on the 4th of August, 1378, and he was not really missed by his subjects. He was known as not such a nice guy, an avid accumulator of cash, and quite a harsh ruler, especially when it came to dishing out punishments with hangings and so on. He is also credited with inventing the rather gruesome practice of the quaresimo, meaning 40 days, in which the poor victim would be mutilated every day up to a total of 40 days if he managed to survive to the end of the torture, after which he was probably killed. Now that Gigi was holding the reins, it didn't take him long to show what he was made of. The chance presented itself when the Marquis of Monferrato wanted to get his hands on the city of Asti, probably because then they were already producing some excellent wine, but probably also for some other reasons. He asked Gigi for help. The new Visconti ruler accepted, but only if he was to be considered the overlord of the whole march of Monferrato, something the silly Marquis accepted. After that, Gigi did take the city of Asti, and then he kept it for himself. If you don't mind, I'll ask you to imagine this sort of thing going on all over the place in the background as we turn our attention to the internal situation in the Visconti family. The old balance of power between Daddy Galeazzo and his brother Bernabò now started to show some cracks with Gigi having taken over from his father. Nothing really serious had come out yet, but tensions were rising, as one can see from the letters that were exchanged between nephew and uncle and the manoeuvrings that went on. So, May of 1385 rolled around and Gigi was planning a trip. Said trip would bring him close to Milan, which was his uncle's stronghold, Pavia being that of Gigi. He sent a letter to his uncle, informing him that he wasn't going to stop and enter the city because he was in a bit of a hurry and wondered if old Uncle Bo wouldn't mind just popping out for a quick hello. Bernabò Visconti had for decades now been in the driver's seat, ruling the roost, the big cheese, and so on and so forth. He therefore felt fully confident when he decided to go out and meet his nephew and his big, burly, heavily armed knights with just his little old self riding his old mule and heading out of the 
Pusterla di Sant'Ambrogio. The Pusterla being a small door leading to the soldiers' battlements and Sant'Ambrogio being the patron saint of Milan. The Pusterla di Sant'Ambrogio would then be used as a label for the events that were about to unfold. As he headed off to say hello to his darling nephew, Bernabò was apprehended and chucked into prison. Gigi then proceeded to waltz into the city and take over the treasury, which had quite a nice pile of cash, several hundred thousand florins. Uncle Bernabò would die a few months later in prison, possibly poisoned by a bowl of poisoned beans. What a way to go. Just like that, the powerful Bernabò Visconti was no more, and once again, all the might and wealth of Milan was in the hands of one man. Afterwards, as is often unfortunately the case with a coup, it was time to tie up loose ends, namely Bernabò's children and his lieutenants. Some of the followers of the old regime were executed, some were exiled, and some fled, such as his sons. As far as the subjects were concerned, things there went over relatively smoothly. They were quite happy to stay in their place as long as the promised reduction in taxes was delivered. Therefore, Gigi was able to get down to business relatively quickly. And that brings us back to where we left off in the previous episode with Florence feeling threatened by the expansion of Milan. At first, the new ruler tried to set the minds of the Florentines at ease by offering them a league against the companies of mercenaries that were roaming around the country, particularly Tuscany, running amok and generally getting up to a lot of naughtiness. Florence accepted but remained very suspicious and at the same time tried to form a league of Tuscan cities just in case they needed to resist some external generic threat. Florence was right to be suspicious, since the potential bones of contention with Milan were numerous. For example, when in Umbria, Florence sided with the Gabrielli family of Gubbio, they faced off with the Montefeltro of Urbino, who were traditionally allied with, you guessed it, Milan. Obviously, I don't expect you to remember all of this, including the things that I'm about to mention, unless you are one of the students who are avidly listening to every word because you have an exam on Italian history coming up. But just to put you in the picture of how the potential sparks for aggression between Milan and Florence were always present. Florence wasn't the only potential enemy of Milan. Indeed, you could probably just add everybody that actually boarded with Milan as potential enemies of the state. And since the holdings of Gian Galeazzo now spread to a good part of northern Italy, that was a lot of people. One particular thorn in their side was the Della Scala family of Verona, whom we have spoken about in the past. For example, in episode 108, Italians Against Stairs. But things were about to get very serious. To set some background, we need to take a few steps back to before Gian Galeazzo took power. 
Indeed, in 1375, the Signore of Verona, Can Signorio, had died. Before kicking the bucket, he had made sure that the succession would pass to his illegitimate sons by killing off his two brothers, Can Grande II and Paolo Albuino. Again, no need to remember the poor chaps. Now, there was someone who had been left out of the inheritance, and that was the sister of the deceased Lord of Verona, Regina della Scala, who just happened to be the wife of one Bernabò Visconti. He had had a go at Verona, enlisting the services of John Hawkwood and Lucius Landau, but had no luck, and Regina ended up having to be content with being paid off. Now, with Giangaleazzo in charge, Antonio della Scala made the mistake of giving asylum to Bernabò's son, which got Gigi manoeuvring to create an anti-Verona alliance with Mantua, Padua and Ferrara. It was the alliance with Padua that ended up being the best bet. Gigi made an agreement with the Da Carrara of Padova, to split the two main cities controlled by the Della Scala. Verona would go to the Visconti, and Vicenza would go to the Da Carrara. So in 1387, the Da Carrara defeated the Della Scala, despite the fact that the latter was supported by Venice. It was time to honour the deal. Gian Galeazzo took Verona, and he also took Vicenza, and gave it to his wife, a descendant of the Della Scala. Obviously, the Da Carrara were none too pleased with this, but they had more urgent things to worry about because the following year, 1388, with Venice accepting to look the other way, Milan also took Padova from under their feet. The Da Carrara would manage to get it back, and in the early 1390s it became a centre of anti-Visconti alliance. However, it was very clear that the delicate balance that had lasted for about a century in the north of Italy was now over. The Della Scala, who had acted as an important element in that balance, were now no longer in power. With Milan having defeated its historical enemy in the north, Florence was really starting to shake in their boots, and it didn't help that the other Tuscan cities, i.e. Lucca, Siena and Pisa, rather than band together in an anti-Visconti Tuscan league, thought that it would be a good idea to look for the support of Milan against the predominance of Florence in Tuscany. This was helped along by the fact that Milan had a series of spies, informants and agitators all over Tuscany, including in Florence itself. At this point, Florence sought alliance with the northern cities, Venice, Padua, Ferrara, Bologna and Mantua, and you may not believe this, but another war broke out in 1390. Once again, it was mostly fought between hired mercenaries on each side, with the Milanese mercenary Jacopo del Verme making it all the way down to the valley of the Arno, the river that flows through Florence. Although it may have seemed that Florence was once again in mortal peril, all of the years of constant warfare 
were taking its toll also on Milan, with the controlled cities starting to grumble quite a bit. So, when Pope Boniface IX reached out to the two sides asking them to make peace, everyone accepted. Milan was able to get one more spiteful little act in, disbanding their mercenaries while they were still in Tuscany, which meant that there were loads of bands of roving soldiers pillaging the countryside. Gian Galeazzo was also able to score a political and diplomatic victory when he managed a few years later to take control of Pisa in 1392 through his agent there, Jacopo da Piano, who led a rebellion against the Gamba Corta, the short leg family, thus placing a Visconti-controlled city right on Florence's doorstep. By now, the new ruler of Milan was not so new. He had been in power for almost 15 years, and not only managed to consolidate that power, but to expand eastward and westward and southward. At this point, he took a look around at the various political entities, the signoria around him. At the very most, he could see counts, unless of course you count the Marquis of Monferrato, who were only fancy in name by this time. Gigi wanted something more. He would have liked, of course, to be king, but that was perhaps a bit too much, especially because there was still a king of the Germans around who also considered himself the king of the Romans and therefore having influence over all of northern Italy. But that did not mean that there couldn't be a promotion in the deal. Now, if you want a promotion, you can't give it to yourself and you need to look for somebody higher up. The problem was that there was nobody really higher up around in Italy, unless, of course, you consider the Pope, and Gian Galeazzo did not consider the Pope. But he did think about the aforementioned King of Germany. The chap at the time was Wenceslas IV of Bohemia. Nothing to do with the Wenceslas from the song. All Gian Galeazzo had to do now was find a way to convince the king that he deserved the promotion. The opportunity presented itself in 1395, when it looked like King Wenceslas was going to get in trouble with the French. The Visconti swooped in, offering help in exchange for a little favour. All the king had to do was transform the holdings of the Visconti into a duchy. So it was that, with a royal diploma of the 11th of May 1395, followed by an official ceremony with a huge party in September of that year, Gian Galeazzo Visconti, up until that moment known as the Count of Virtù, became Gian Galeazzo Visconti, first Duke of the Duchy of Milan. An entity that would last until a certain Napoleon Bonaparte came along. Grazie, grazie. Thank you for listening. And thanks in particular for the support of my wonderful Patreon supporters, who are now 105. I really wish I could personally thank all of you. 
As representatives, we will take the second part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, and they are Kevin, Mark P, Marxist, Leninist, Sicilian, Mella, Michus Porchus, Mike M, Neville, Niels, Paradise, Patrizia Kappa, Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, Rudy F, Scott L, Sean M, Shauna S, Shelby, Stephen, Tap Dance Down Under, and TO5. And of course, the tippy top Maria Montessori, and Dante Ligiri level Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, David C, Sen, and they are now joined by Oak. Welcome, welcome, Oak, to the Tippy Top group. And we also have a new Patreon supporter, Benedetto S. Welcome, welcome. If you would like to get in touch with questions, comments, or some deep, dark secrets you really want to share and want to get off of your chest, you can get in touch at hello at ahistoryofitaly.com or follow us on social media. You will find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. By the way, if you would like to send in some Italy-related pictures to share, we will be happy to do so. At our website, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can go to our support page and become a Patreon supporter and get access to extra content. We are nearing about 100 tidbits of content on Patreon, so head on over there for something extra. Once again, grazie mille. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Right. Welcome to you all, family and friends of the Visconti. Let's get right down to it because there is a lot of business to discuss. First of all, who are we going to choose as Pope? Urban or Clement? Why don't we just back both of them and just not tell each of them that we are supporting the other? Hmm. Hmm. Hold on. I think that Urban has actually defeated Clement. Should we back the winning team? Yes, yes. Good thinking. We'll back Urban and just send a nice letter to Clement. Uh, maybe we'll tell him how stylish we think he is. Yes, good idea. Let's also tell him how we love his hat. Yes, yes. Oh, and his shoes. Oh, yes, yes. Splendid. Right. I'll make a note of that. Hat and shoes. Right, right. The next order of business is Francesco da Carrara the Elder. Apparently, he's not doing too well. Should we send a get well card? Uh, I think he's dead. Really? Okay, well, uh, shall we send him a condolence letter then? Well, I think he actually died in our prisons, didn't he? Oh dear, you're right, so he did. All right, let's send a condolence letter and blame it on the folks from Verona. Mm. Mm. Speaking of which, 
It looks like Padua and Verona are headed for war. Who shall we back? Let's back Padua against Verona and then Verona against Padua. Good idea. And since we're backing Padua first, we can send Verona a nice fruit basket or something. Yes, yes. And maybe a floral arrangement. Hmm, yes. A nice shrubbery, maybe. Okay, good show, good show. We're doing well. Now, those Florentines are getting a bit agitated and they think we want to invade them. Well, is that what we want? Well, yes, of course. I mean, we want to invade everyone, but we don't want them to know that. Oh, yeah, you're right. How about... If we set their mind at ease by founding an I Love Florence fan club. That's a great idea. And then we could have t-shirts and buttons printed and all that. Very well. Let me make a note of that. I Love Florence t-shirts. Excellent work. Last on the list, we have a proposal to become part of a new religion. Really? What religion is that? Well, there's a group of people who would like us to join them in venerating the Great Turnip. Hmm, well, that sounds interesting. But if the whole turnip thing doesn't work out, then we might be considered heretics. Hmm, well, we wouldn't want that now, would we? What if we continue being Christians, but we keep a large turnip at hand with a face drawn on it, just in case the turnip people do manage to become the dominant religion. Hmm, hmm, right. That's almost everything sorted. Just one very last thing. We need to sort out the arrangements for the banquet. I was thinking either pizza or kebab. Pizza with a kebab on it? Ah, splendid, splendid. Meeting adjourned. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.